We give you all the glory. We give you all the praise. Please speak to us today. Amen. You may take a seat. Thank you. It's 2004 at the Athens Olympics. Australia is in third place in the Olympic rowing final. They're doing well, but China is right on our heels. And then with 500 metres to go, they start to tire. They drop back into fifth place. And then the unthinkable happens. A woman in the team drops her oars and lies back down into the lap of the athlete behind her. Australia finishes last, a good 10 seconds behind the competitor in front of them. People were wondering what had happened, but the rowing captain soon cleared up the confusion when she left the race and faced a news conference. She said, I just want to stress that it wasn't a technical problem out there. There was nothing wrong with the boat. We had nine in the boat, but there were only eight operating. This photo soon became famous, and Sally Robbins became famous for all the wrong reasons. She was known as the rower who gave up. She committed the greatest of Australian crimes. She gave up under pressure. She said it was out of mere exhaustion, but she was critiqued across the country. The Australian media went to town. The Daily Telegraph said it was unforgivable. Sally Robbins did what we don't like. She gave up. And today I want to talk about not giving up when we feel like giving up. And my hunch is that most of us won't ever have the opportunity to give up an Olympic final. Most of us probably won't ever give up in a dramatic throw the towel in, storm out of your work, leave your home and your responsibilities kind of way as well. But my hunch is that we've all been through moments where we're tempted to want to give up, where we get weary, we get tired, or maybe we just lose a little bit of our passion. As Felicity talked about last week, we forget about our first love. And perhaps you're here today and that's where you're at. You've had a tough week or you're in a tough season of your life. Or perhaps you're more on the strong side. You're on the mountain. But when we're strong, we decide who we're going to be when we're weak. So whether you've had a tough week or a, or a good one, whether you're on the mountain or the valley, God has something to say to us. And today I want to talk to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I want you, if you've got your phone, or if you've got a real Bible, that's even better, kudos to you, pull out your phone and open up the Bible app, because we're going to look at this passage together. And I want you to look to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, if you see the person next to you getting distracted, instead of staying on the Bible app and going to Facebook or Instagram, you can just give them a shove as we go along. So has everyone got 2 Corinthians chapter 4 open up? We've got, um, yeah, see, Clive Koopman, he's got the real Bible. See, Ben was right. Here he is. <laughs> that was so funny. 
Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, I want you to click on verse 1. And if you know how to use the highlighter in your app, highlight verse 1. I'm reading from NIV. So this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, we do not lose heart. Okay, now I want you in that same chapter to scroll down to verse 16. You can highlight this one as well. I'll just read the beginning of it. Therefore, we do not lose heart. So you can turn to the other side now and say, therefore, we do not lose heart. Very good. So has everyone highlighted the beginning and end of their chapter in their phone? Now, I like to call this a do not lose heart sandwich. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at this sandwich today. We're going to open it up. We're going to see what's inside. We're going to eat it all up and consume it. And we're going to together see what it looks like to not give up, to not lose heart when we feel like giving up. Are you ready? Good. Okay. Now, Paul is the one who wrote the letter to the two Corinthians. Now, we've talked about this before, but Paul is the guy who used to hunt down and murder Christians, and now he is one. And God has called him to preach the good news about Jesus to a people group called the Gentiles. But the problem is, is that Paul has got it coming at him from all different sides. See, the Gentiles, the people that he's trying to reach, they are violent against him. They don't really like what he has to say. They disagree with him. He's not really welcome in their circles. But then on the flip side, the Christians are also suspicious of Paul. They question his integrity, his authenticity. They don't know if they should trust whether he's actually a brother or not. Some of the people don't like that he's preaching grace. They think it's all about the rules. So Paul is getting it from all sides. That's where he says, I'm hard pressed on every side. And not only that, but Paul has had to experience severe physical, emotional and mental struggle. He's spent time in jail. He's been beaten. He's been hungry and thirsty. He's been abandoned and rejected and questioned. Paul has been through a really tough time. And the first thing that I want to point out is that Paul had every reason under the sun to want to give up, to say, you know what, God, this is too hard. I'm trying to serve you. I'm pouring my life out and this is what I'm getting in return. And yet here we have in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians that Paul wrote with his own hand, therefore we do not lose heart. How can this man say with such boldness and confidence because I have this ministry by the mercy of God, I will not lose heart. Well, Paul had discovered three things that we're going to go through today that helped him to not give up when everything was up against him. Firstly, three things. Paul discovered the power, he understood the process, and he knew the promise. You can put them on the screen. The power, the process, and the promise. Or for emoticons for all you Gen Zers out there. So the first thing is that Paul understood where his power came from. Now, one of the reasons that Paul was being questioned was because the Corinthian church were comparing him to what were called these super apostles. These were people who were coming into the church and telling them all about how impressive they were. 
They were talking about their credentials, their experience, boasting about themselves. They were flashy and impressive. And they were questioning whether Paul was a true apostle. They said, how can a man who's been sent to jail, who's been beaten, who spends nights sleepless, hungry and thirsty, be a true follower of Christ? Surely a true apostle wouldn't go through so much suffering. They didn't think Paul was impressive enough. They thought he would write, they wrote, he wrote all these strong and powerful letters, but in, in person he wasn't very impressive. He wasn't very convincing. They were questioning who he was. But Paul wants the Corinthian church to know that it's not about him, it's about Jesus. You can look with me in your phones down to verse 5. It says, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Paul wasn't interested in being a super apostle. He wanted to be a servant. He wanted this church to know that it wasn't about him. It was about Jesus. He wasn't there to lay out his credentials and how impressive he was. He wanted to boast about Christ. He wanted them to know about Jesus. And the word for us today is that our power and impressiveness doesn't come from us. It doesn't matter what you look like when you walk out the door. You have a power that comes from God that lives within you. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. And then Paul says the most powerful thing in verse Verse 7, he says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. So every morning when you look in the mirror and when you walk out the door, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can know that there's a treasure inside this jar of clay. Jars of clay are unimpressive. They're fragile. What Paul is saying, it doesn't matter what you see on the outside. See, I have a treasure. And we all have an all-surpassing power that lives within us. So we don't need to worry what people think about us from the outside, what the world tells us is important. We have a treasure and an all-surpassing power within us. And Paul doesn't say that this is just a sometimes surpassing power or a majority of the time surpassing power. He says this is an all-surpassing power. He knows where his power comes from. And see, the difference between our walk with Christ and Sally Robbins in the rowing boat is that we don't need to worry that our energy is going to run out. We don't need to worry that our power has a finite amount. See, the story behind Sally was that she just went out, she peaked too early in the race, and she was exhausted, and so she just eventually laid down mid-race in the Olympics. But we don't need to fear that our strength is going to run out, that in our later days that we're going to lose enough energy or motivation to carry on. We don't need to worry if we're going to be able to get to the end of the day or if we can face tomorrow and all the challenges that are ahead of us because we have an all-surpassing power within us. So whatever you have got to face tomorrow, whatever you've got to face next week, whatever is waiting for you next year, there is an all-surpassing power within you ready to conquer it and overcome it and it doesn't come from you it comes from the Lord Jesus Christ so it's never going to run out Jesus is never going to lie down in the boat he's working even when we can't see it he never stops working and we have that treasure within us 
And Paul had discovered that secret. So even when every other person in the world would have expected him to give up, he carried on because he had a treasure in a jar of clay, an all-surpassing power that came not from himself but from God. Paul knew where his power came from. And secondly, he knew that it was a process. There are so many things in life that if you look at them in isolation, they don't really make sense. If you were to go to the gym and see all these people around you huffing and puffing and sweating, you would think, why do people pay to come and do this together? It's confusing. You don't really understand. My husband is always wondering, why do you pay to go in fun runs? They're not fun, and you can do them without doing them with other people. Why? Why do you do that? But what he doesn't understand, and what everyone in the gym understands, is that it's part of a process. They're getting fitter and stronger. Their health, their mental health, and their physical health is getting stronger every day. It's part of a process. It has a purpose. My friend has just gone through, she's just gotten married and she's just gone through the wedding planning process and I was having nightmares remembering what a stressful time it is. You have to make hundreds of decisions about things you don't really care about. You have to manage your finances and deal with in-laws that you're not even immersed into their family yet and all the politics within that other family and what Arnie Beryl wants and Uncle Ron and should you even invite Uncle Ron because they've got that weird cousin and do we really want him there? You've got to negotiate all these things and wonder why the cake costs so much when it's just butter and sugar and icing. <laughs> Wedding planning is very stressful. But you don't go through it for the sake of it. You go through it because it's part of a process. You go through it for the joy of the bride walking down the aisle to marry the love of her life. I mean, even the childbirth, the way that we all came into the world. I just think it's hilarious that the way we come into the world is fraught with so much pain and awkwardness. When you're in the final phases of pregnancy, just trying to pick up something that you drop on the ground, it's really challenging. But we don't go through those things just for the sake of it. We go through it for the joy of a child being born. If you were to ask me to tell you about the time that each of my boys were put on my chest after they were born, I wouldn't be able to tell you without sobbing. The joy is so deep. Pain is often part of a process. And the same is true for our walk with God. Paul understands that all these things are part of a process that God is using to draw himself closer to him. He says later on, Paul himself says later on in chapter 7, he says, in all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. Paul knew that joy was found not to the side of his troubles, not despite his troubles, but in his troubles. And it wasn't just in some of them. It wasn't just in the majority of them. It was in all of his troubles. See, because Paul had discovered this secret that life is a process and that God is using all things for good, he could find joy even in the very midst of his troubles. 
I used to think that when we went through hard things, we just had to grit our teeth and get through it. And of course, there's always an element of perseverance. But what God is saying to us and what Paul is saying in this verse is that we can find joy even in the midst of despair, that we can find joy even in the midst of pain and suffering, Because God is with us in the valley. He's with us in the darkness. So he can bring joy even when we're standing in that hard place. At our last women's conference, we got to hear some of the stories from women across the church. And it was so enriching for me because we got to hear about what some women have walk, had walked through that I had no idea they had walked through. I remember hearing from Deb Bowdman and, and Kathy Koopman, hearing things that I had no idea they'd experienced. But it was so powerful to hear because they'd gone through a process and they'd come out the other side. And there'd been so many things that God had worked in their heart where I thought, wow, you got through that. And I'm in a stage of life where there's some, I have some friends of mine where stuff is flying at them and hitting at them that they never thought life would throw at them. But it was so good to hear stories of women who have gone through that and can genuinely say that God has brought them great happiness and joy and contentment in their life. Because there's so many paths that we walk that in flesh and life, we can't understand how God could redeem them. But he does. Because life is a process and he's using all things to draw us closer to himself. Later on in this passage in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says a couple of verses which always make me think of Rocky Balboa. And I kind of always picture Eye of the Tiger playing when I read these passages. So let me just read them to you and you can kind of picture him running as I say them and maybe a bit of, I should have teed up Eye of the Tiger to play in the background, be slightly distracting. But in verse 8 of chapter 4, this is what Paul says. He says, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. It's like Paul is in the boxing ring and he keeps getting struck down, but he's not struck out. He keeps saying, we're not giving up because I have a ministry to do. I have work to do while I'm still here on the earth. I will continue by the power of Christ that he's working in me. What Paul is saying is that just because I've been struck down doesn't mean that I'm abandoned. It doesn't mean that God has given up on me. It doesn't mean that everything is going to go downhill from here. I might be struck down but I am not struck out I will carry on I will stay in the ring and I'll keep doing what God has called me to do because I understand that it's part of a process we've had a number of milestones in our house this year and my youngest son Judah a little bit after he turned one he started walking and my second son Hunter as you all probably know he's now completed toilet training thank you Jesus But it's gotten me reflecting about how children become more and more independent. And I've realised that children don't just all of a sudden when they go to school or when they leave the house, just cut the cords with their parents and they then become independent and they don't rely on you anymore. Rather, the way to independence is a series of small, if not thousands of steps that they take from the minute that they're born. When they're born, they're wholly dependent on their mum and their dad. They need us for everything. And then as they get older, they're able to sit up by themselves. They're eventually able to feed themselves. They begin to walk. They can go to the bathroom themselves. And then eventually, they leave the house and they have no need for us. Although if you're like me, when you go home, you don't mind your parents cooking for you and cleaning for you. 
But in general, they take a path of greater and greater independence and less reliance on their parents. But with God, the process is the exact opposite. That as we walk in faith with him, we become more and more reliant upon him, more and more dependent on his goodness and work in our life. He calls us to deeper and deeper reliance as we realise just what fragile clay pots we are and how much more we need that treasure and power that he has given us within us. Paul understands that it's part of a process. He knows the power, he knows the process, and he also knows the promise. The final verse that I want to highlight to you is verse 16 and 17 into Corinthians chapter 4. It says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The final reason that Paul doesn't give up is because he knows that a day is coming, a day that's been promised, when every tear will be wiped away, where there'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more trouble, anxiety, no more challenges, no more valleys. God will be with his people and his people will be with them. So he doesn't want to give up. And the fascinating thing about this verse, if you want to put it back on the screen, is the way that Paul talks about his troubles. He describes them as light and momentary. And what's interesting is that this is so different to the way that he refers to his troubles in chapter 1, only two chapters, three chapters beforehand. In chapter 1, this is how he describes his troubles. He says... I do not, if you put it on the screen, I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles that we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. So right here in chapter 1, Paul is saying that the troubles that he experienced were far beyond their ability to endure. They felt like they'd received the sentence of death. They despaired of life itself. But then here, only three chapters later, he says that they were only light and momentary. What is Paul saying? Well, it's the same Paul and it's the same troubles, but his perspective has changed. See, what's interesting is when you look at something, it's all about what you compare it to. If you think about our earth... It's huge. We in the Blue Mountains know that it's huge because Sydney feels so far away. It can feel like you're driving to another country when you're driving into the city. It's same with Australia. We're so far away from anywhere that it takes so long on a plane to get somewhere. The world has 7.5 billion people in it. Even if you tried your whole life to meet everyone, you wouldn't be able to. Or if you tried to travel everywhere, you wouldn't even get close to seeing all of the world. It's massive. When I tried to look up how heavy it was, this is the number that it gave me. I can't even attempt to say how big it is. That's the mass of the earth. It's huge. It's massive. But the thing is, the earth is only one planet within our solar system. And when you compare it to the size of the sun, suddenly it doesn't seem as big. If you want to put on the next slide... 
And then if you recognise that actually our solar system is only one of about 500 solar systems that, uh, that scientists have discovered, and apparently they're discovering more every single day. And they think that there could be up to 100 billion solar systems that they haven't yet discovered. All of a sudden, our Earth doesn't seem as big. It doesn't seem as significant. And what Paul is saying is that those troubles which were hard and challenging and tough, the troubles where he despaired of life itself, when he compares them to the goodness and the glory of God that's coming, when he compares them to the day that he's going to see his Father and Lord face to face, all of a sudden those troubles will be nothing but light and momentary, just a speck in the sky. And the fascinating thing about the words that Paul uses in this passage is that in chapter 1, when he says we were under great pressure, that word literally means weighted down. These troubles were a weight on Paul's shoulders. But then here in chapter 4, he says that a glory is coming that will far outweigh them all. What Paul is saying is that you could pile up all of the things you've had to face in your life. In fact, if you were to pile up every single challenge that that 7.5 billion people on this earth have had to walk through, it would be a very heavy weight because the things that we walk through are tough and they're hard and they're heavy. But the glory of God that awaits us is so great that they'll be nothing but light and momentary. That is the promise that is ahead. And there are some things that will be redeemed on this earth, some weights that God will restore in this earth alone, this time alone. But there are many things that they won't be fully redeemed until our Lord returns. And that's why Paul longs for heaven. That's why he doesn't lose heart. That's why he knows he's not discouraged. Because Jesus will come back and he will make all the wrongs right he will turn all the troubles into glory because we'll be so overwhelmed by the goodness of our Father. A while ago when I shared, I told you about one of my friends who had lost her little baby boy named Arlo. Um, and as the band comes up, I just want to finish with this. She posted on Facebook this week this message and I just wanted to read it out with you and then I'll close. She said, today Arlo would have been three months old. On Wednesday, he'd been gone for two months. Since Arlo died, I've been desperate for Jesus to come back and put an end to our suffering. Babies shouldn't get sick and die. Parents shouldn't outlive their children. If anything shows us the brokenness of the world, of this world, the effect of sin, surely it is this. As Christians, we believe that there is only one way to fix this brokenness, and that's for Jesus to return. But that also means that only those who follow him will be given eternal life. That's a bold statement, but one both Sam and I, that's her husband, believe to be true. Our only hope of being free from suffering and pain, our only hope of being reunited with Arlo is through Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. Having this faith doesn't magically make everything better now. Deciding to follow Jesus means entering into a relationship with him. And when there's relationship, there's emotion. And I can tell you I've been mad at Jesus so mad that he didn't heal my baby boy on this earth. I don't understand. I've hated him. I've questioned him. I've told him that he got it wrong. And yet, I haven't walked away from him. Jesus hasn't let me. 
He's held me close when I'm kicking and screaming at him. He has shown me the certainty of my salvation, which renews my hope of eternal life with Jesus and Arlo and my dad and all my loved ones who have this same faith. So today, please think about life after death. Seek to know Jesus. Do it for Arlo. Do it for me because I want to be with you in heaven one day. And most of all, do it for yourself because Jesus is the only way to live free of guilt, shame, sin, pain and suffering on the day he returns. A day that I desperately want to come soon. Don't leave it too late. Today, I want to invite you to commit yourself to the one who will never give up on you. When when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was overwhelmed with sorrow and anguish knowing what was ahead. The Bible tells us that he sweated drops of blood, but he didn't give up. Instead, he said, Father, not my will, but yours. When he was beaten and mocked, when he was spat upon, and when he was hung on a cross, he didn't give up. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And when darkness covered the land and the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom, Jesus called out. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He never gave up. He went all the way to the cross for you. So you can know that he will never give up on you. And if you've never made a decision to follow Christ, to follow the one who's never going to give up on you, then I want to invite you to do that today. Because everyone in this life is going to let us down. Everyone is going to let us down in some way. And maybe you're getting tired of running out of your own strength. Maybe you want to go to the one who actually says, my burden is light. Come to me and I will give you rest. I want to give you the opportunity to do that today. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you want to make a commitment to follow Jesus, to decide to be with the one who won't ever give up on you, who will give you a power to follow him, who invites you to trust him, to lean upon him, then I ask you to raise your hand today to draw a line in the sand, to say, that's me. I want to make a commitment to follow Jesus. And perhaps you're one here today who has made that commitment in the past, but you've been trying to do it out of your own strength. You've been running from your own energy, out of your own resources, and you're tired and you're weary and you need the strength and power from God. I want to invite you to raise your hand today. So if you're in either of those categories, I'm going to count to three and I encourage you to draw a line in the sand today and say, Jesus, I want to commit myself to you and trust that you will never give up on me. One, two, three. Thank you to those who are brave to do that. Let's all pray together can repeat after me. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you that you're a God who never gave up. And you're a God who won't ever give up. We love you. We commit our lives to you. Please change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen.